You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. You're listening to Updates for Healthcare Providers, Experiences from the Front Lines. This episode was recorded live from the presenters' homes and without access to professional recording equipment. We hope you enjoy. So let's dive right in. Uh, the way we're going to do it tonight is we'll do a brief introduction, and then Dr. Patrick will present a very brief opening introductory uh, context and some epidemiology slides, and then it'll be all about your questions and answers. So Dr. Patrick, uh, please go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, folks. Um, I'm very glad to be on. Uh, my thanks to the Faculty of Medicine and to you, uh, Simon, and it's a pleasure to be sharing this um, seminar with two of my best colleagues, um, Bonnie and Mel. Hats off also from me to you uh, if you've been involved in the frontline virtual care or any part of the response. I am uh, an infectious disease specialist, uh, but I've also been knee-deep in public health for about 30 years out of uh, British Columbia Center for Disease Control. My current role there is uh, Director of Research, and I'm also a Professor of Population and Public Health at UBC. I have uh, no, no disclosures by way of context. Thanks very much, Dr. Patrick. And next on my list is Dr. Mel Cratchen. Please introduce yourself. Just hit the uh, unmute and uh, introduce yourself and take it away. So I'm still seeing a, a red mic with a line through it. So if you want to hit the button on your screen, perfect. Sorry about right that. Ahead. I'll get used to Zoom eventually. Likewise, thank you, Simon. Thanks to UBC Continuing Education and to Bonnie and David. Um, my name is Mel Cresden. I'm the medical director of the Public Health Laboratory at the BC Center for Disease Control. I am also trying to, uh, I'm also part of the Department of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine, and uh, I'm just looking forward to hearing the questions that people have to, to ask. I also have some disclosures. I've had some grants and contract funding from Siemens, Roche, and Hologic unrelated to any of this work. Thank you very much. And uh, one more panelist introduced. Please go ahead, Dr. Bonnie Henry. Hi, good evening, and thank you very much. Um, I'm speaking to you from the uh, traditional territories of the Lekongan-speaking people here in Victoria, the home of the Esquimalt and Songhee First Nations, and I'm very grateful to be able to speak to you from here tonight. So I am a, a public health and physician for many years, and currently am the Provincial Health Officer for British Columbia. And I am just really grateful to be here with David and Mel um, and to be able to hopefully um, answer some questions that you have. I will say by way of disclosures, um, I, you know, part of my role is providing advice to government on health issues, including most recently, of course, uh, advice around um, the public health actions that we're taking for COVID-19. And I often say I, I provide advice to government and sometimes they take it. So uh, I've, I've already been uh, receiving messages from colleagues asking for my disclosures. This is going to be a live and interactive webinar. So I don't have any industry disclosures. And my one disclosure is I work with a, a medical educational teaching company, which uh, we won't discuss any further. So why don't we dive right into the slides. Uh, Dr. Patrick, thank you so much for taking the time to prepare an introduction. Take it away. Okay. I'm going to be very brief with this because we want to focus on your questions. Since the novel coronavirus um, arose in, um, in China in late uh, 
in, in late last year. We've obviously seen epidemics of different scope um, arise around the world. Uh, we're over 300,000 deaths at this point in time. And we know that to date, our trajectory has been relatively benign compared to that. But there is no certainty uh, with respect to the future. That's going to depend upon us. Next slide, please. All of you now are very familiar with the epidemic curve, the plot of uh, newly uh, reported cases um, by date. Um, and you can see that um, thanks to Mel having developed um, a test in the public health lab at BCCDC, um, very soon after the sequence of the virus was published, we were detecting cases in uh, January, which remained sporadic for a period of time. Uh, however, as you well know, we saw uh, the beginnings of an exponential growth curve um, in BC, um, which was aborted only after we got into major public health measures uh, that began mid-March and, and, were, and were actually amplified towards the end of that month. Not long after those measures came into effect, transmission dropped, took a little longer for the reported cases to drop down. And as you can see, we're down to a smattering of cases on a daily basis in BC. The interesting thing is that most of these now are, as opposed to the early days, are locally acquired and they're through a known case or cluster. And actually, more of the cases are clustered now than they were, say, uh, four to six weeks ago. Next slide. Now, for those of you who are skeptical about confirmed case counts, because you wonder about changes in testing. First of all, uh, we'll be talking about testing in answering your questions today. But it's good to see also that the hospital census, as well as, as depicted here, the critical care uh, census continues to decrease. And also, if you take a look at the numbers of new hospitalizations or new critical care admissions, those are also decreasing. Those are much less likely to be um, affected by changes in uh, our testing pattern. Next slide. Of course, the epidemic hasn't been experienced um, evenly. Um, uh, the first thing not depicted on this slide that you need to remember is that we are seeing fewer cases diagnosed um, in children, and that seems to be a common pattern around the world. Where seroprevalence studies have been done in children, the prevalence also appears to be lower there. So there's something about the transmission dynamic in kids that's different. Um, there's also something about the impact of the disease on males. Um, as you can see here, the blue bars tell us that um, as parts of the general population, as you well know, males and females comprise equal amounts. And in terms of COVID cases, it's about the same story. But when you begin to talk about um, levels of hospitalization, ICU admissions, or deaths, um, there is a higher risk for those of us without two X chromosomes. And um, uh, that's, uh, that's an order of about 80% um, higher. You also know that the risk is considerably increased um, as we age or as we have other comorbidities. Next slide. Um, it used to be that the reproductive number was just an obscure idea that Kate Winslet introduced during an opening scene in the Contagion movie. Uh, but most of you know what it is now. It's the average number of secondary cases that occur from a, a, an existing case of an infectious disease. And as you know, any reproductive number more than one spells a, an increase uh, in, in an epidemic. If we can drive it below one, that's when we can see ourselves bending the curve. And on the left-hand side of this slide, you can see how that uh, reproductive number of three, which would be a pessimistic reproductive number, but not unrealistic for this virus, 
but would give three cases in one generation and nine in another. In the absence of vaccine-mediated herd immunity, um, the only way to drop that reproductive number, that effective reproductive number, is to either reduce our number of contacts that we have, and clearly um, that's what we've done in British Columbia, and uh, we'll show you some slides to, um, uh, to talk about that. But it's also very important that uh, we remember that the risk of transmission for each of those contacts is another variable that we can work on. So staying home when we're sick, um, coughing into our sleeve, washing our hands, and most likely if we're in very crowded um, scenarios where we may be symptomatic or, or, or not, wearing a mask may reduce uh, the risk of uh, transmission as well. As we increase uh, contact rate to an extent unintentionally by, by opening up uh, society, a focus on reducing transmission risk for contact remains important, if not increasingly important. Next slide. Uh, many of you have seen Bonnie present these uh, models, which have just basically been fitting a dynamic transmission model, a mathematical simulation of the epidemic to our existing cases. And these inform us about several things. This particular slide fit to cases uh, recently shows that they, the, the actual uh, rate of contacts we have between humans in BC is well down from December. Uh, we've had estimates of between 30 and 38% uh, of our normal rates of contact, and those still haven't increased uh, radically. And that's probably been a major contributor to why the curve uh, went down and why our reproductive number is currently below one. Uh, next slide. Um, we've also told you that there are different futures for this epidemic depending on what we do, and really, if the reproductive number goes above one, we know it increases. And one of the things that would do that is if our contact rate increased radically. Um, we know that we can probably get away with an increase to 50 or 55% of December contacts without seeing a takeoff. Um, our models would suggest that if we go above a threshold, um, just above, we may see a slow takeoff, as in that graph on the top right. But if we really increase our contact rate a lot, we may go right back to a fairly rapidly experienced um, exponential growth. So we need to open up, but we need to open up while maintaining distancing and while maintaining a risk and reduction of transmission for contact. Uh, next slide. The other thing the models shown us was that um, contact tracing actually makes quite a big difference, particularly if we do weaken um, our contacts over on the right-hand side of the slide, just so that we get right to it. We can keep the uh, epidemic flat uh, if we're uh, catching 75% of contacts, even with relatively weak social distancing. And so obviously our programs need to aim for 90 or 95% completeness of contact tracing to be able to achieve that. So these models have told us that what we know intuitively, that good testing and high performance contact tracing, um, that those things are, are very important in terms of the future of the epidemic. Next slide. We also wanted to answer some questions around um, school entry. And so we looked at a model that was age structured. And so each of these lines now is not an epidemic curve for the population but uh, a representation of the epidemic in different age groups in the population. That green line, for example, um, covers people who are um, basically the, uh, the parents of kids. They're the people 25 to 54, and they've made up the bulk of um, individual cases. 
the yellow line represents um, what's going on in kids. Now, an unlikely scenario is that kids are just as susceptible as grown-ups, because as we've mentioned, we see lower prevalence, lower attack rates in the kids in various different studies. But if you go down to the bottom left-hand side, you'll see that if we opened uh, schools, this was done mid-May, but we're going to start, 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 in, start in, um, in June. If that were true, we might see a little bit of an increase by summertime in the kids, but it wouldn't really have much of an effect on anything else. But in a more likely scenario where uh, susceptibility is, say, 50% on the top right-hand side, over the course of a month or a month and a half of school, um, we wouldn't really expect much transmission to occur with the kids. And the only increases we might see is if we see the parents going back to work and having a whole bunch of extra uh, contact uh, going, going on there. So, uh, so we do need to learn a great deal more about the susceptibility of children over time because that will sort of determine um, uh, our approaches that may need to take place um, when, when schools consider reopening in the fall. Uh, next slide, please. And finally, um, this was just a variant of this um, where we wanted to take a look at the impact of, hey, if, you, if, if the, the people who get the virus who are symptomatic self-isolate, does it make a big difference? And um, this is just one example of it, but uh, the yellow line uh, does something very radically different. If only 20% self-isolate, then if 50% self-isolate, and I didn't put on there if you know 80 or 100% self-isolate, but obviously staying home when you're sick, um, as you you know, makes a great deal of sense um, from uh, from the common sense perspective. Um, it also shows up in the model. Next slide. So I just um, summarized by saying, obviously in D.C., the number of reported cases and hospitalizations uh, remain low. This is not the case all over the world, and we have to be leery about importation from jurisdictions with um, higher risk. The majority of cases are uh, related to local acquisition through a known case or cluster, which is good news from the point of view of tracking the epidemic. While the sex distribution is equal, males have a higher proportion of risk given infection. And we've mentioned the sorts of things that keep R0 below 1, reducing contact rates and all sorts of things to reduce transmission. Finally, uh, we will want to focus a bit, quite a bit more on learning a lot more about childhood susceptibility. Kids will get the infection, but it doesn't seem at the same rate as adults, and the epidemiological implications of that need to be better understood. So with that, um, we'll open up to what looked like a great list of questions, Simon. Absolutely. So uh, we've got 217 questions on the board, and what you can't see is there's dozens and dozens of questions that have been asked that uh, are still, uh, we've got a team of folks at the UBC CPD office who are going through and trying to screen out duplicates. So if we don't get to your question, uh, why did we delete it? The reason is we're focusing on COVID-19, so we're not going to talk about the, the flu questions that are coming through, and we're also trying to screen out questions that are duplicates. So um, let's begin with number one, and the, uh, the question of the evening probably is this one. So let's start right there. When will antibody testing be widely available in BC? And Dr. Kradshin, I'll ask you to uh, begin with this. And then for each of the other panelists, you're welcome to comment once, uh, once he's spoken. Uh, there's a team of people working on trying to validate these different tests. You should understand that globally there are over 250 different tests that are out there. Some of them perform very poorly. Some of them perform well. And what we're trying to do is to make sure that the tests that uh, are made available 
are performing uh, well. In other words, they're sensitive and specific. And specificity is very important. And, and the reason is, is that let's say you have a test that is 98% specific. Well, in our current situation, because of the hard work of the public health team uh, led through Bonnie, we have a very low expected prevalence in British Columbia. And so if you start testing people with a test that isn't very specific, you're going to get as many false positives as true positives. So to get back to the other part of the question, we think that it'll be available in the coming month or so, but the, the important thing to understand is the test essentially becomes positive somewhere between 7 to 12 days after being infected. And typically, most people will become positive at about uh, 14 to 30 days after infection. One of the questions is, what is the prevalence that we've had in British Columbia, and what would serology do? It would help us understand what that prevalence is. There is some utility in some cases to assess uh, some unusual syndromes from COVID. There's these inflammatory syndromes, there's these COVID toe syndromes where they may not have been tested for the virus itself, and serology may help define those. The biggest question, of course, is are you seroprotective? And nobody knows that answer at this point. And therefore, although serology may be available for use, we think that its use has to be very specifically targeting what is the seroprevalence in the province, can we help it define some of these unusual presentations of the illness, and ultimately, can we assess whether certain healthcare workers or individuals who work in the poultry plants in British Columbia who have gotten infected, will they be protected from reinfection? Mel, could I um, ask you for one embellishment on that? Obviously, it's like ClinEpi 101, the pretest likelihood is very important. If, if uh, one of the audience has a patient who had a classical illness during the peak of the, um, the epidemic uh, wave where it sounded very much like COVID, but they were unable to access a test at that time, would you be recommending they get a serological test now? Because with a high pretest likelihood, the positive predictive value of the test would be different than if you applied it to all comers. That's a good question because one of the things that we have noticed globally is that people who are very sick with this virus, those who are hospitalized, they're the ones who tend to produce a more robust immune response. And so sometimes they may have mild symptoms, they may have a high pretest probability, but until we actually have a good handle on how these tests are performing, uh, they may lead to a false negative result, even though they actually did have COVID. So this is one of the reasons that we're trying to be very careful and judicious about releasing this test, because it, it's not going to tell you the full picture until we know more about the performance of these tests. Can I add to that as well? Because what you said, Mel, is, is just so true. And you know, I've answered the question about what we're doing around testing so much. But the, the importance is uh, having an accurate understanding of our prevalence. 
so that we know what proportion of false positives and false negatives we might be getting. And you know, we we've, we've been hearing a lot about things like in Wuhan, they're, they're teaching, they're testing uh, 11 million people. Um, and even if it, this test was 99.9% accurate, with that prevalence that they have in Wuhan right now, which is way, 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 way tiny, tiny, um, they're going to probably uh, as many as, as at 99.9%, they'll have 10,000 to 11,000 people who are falsely positive. And of course, the burden on public health in trying to follow up every single one of those people and determine whether they truly have this or not is is immense. So we need to be thoughtful in how we do this. And, and Mel is modest, but he's also on our national uh, immunology task force to try and help us globally and across the country better understand how we can use these tests to, to provide the information we need. And some of the questions coming in are from rural areas and from clinics and offices asking, what about the rapid tests? Are we going to see those in BC anytime soon, Mel? Well, so there are rapid tests that are deployed for detecting nucleic acids, and those are being preferentially deployed to the remote and rural sites because they uh, have big transport challenges because of the size of our province. Um, there are going to be some antigen tests that have still not been fully evaluated. So those tests need to be assessed for how sensitive they are. In terms of the point of care tests, we've done some pretty extensive evaluations of uh, two major point of care tests, and, and a number of them just didn't cut it. They didn't, they didn't perform well. And so we still need to have a better understanding of how those tests perform uh, because it, it, you get an immediate result, but it goes back to the point that both Bonnie and David highlighted, that uh, having a test that's either false positive or false negative uh, can basically be as destructive as, as having no test. Absolutely. So um, anyone want to add anything to that, go ahead and, and jump in if you do. Otherwise, we'll move on. We've got uh, hundreds of questions. So yeah. in, in terms of uh, uh, surveillance, is there going to be asymptomatic surveillance for the broader BC population? Some of the questions are asking, uh, should, should healthcare providers be tested? Uh, there's a couple questions saying, you know, my kid had COVID toes or I had a fever and cough. I didn't get a test then. So Dr. Henry, uh, are we going to be doing asymptomatic broad population testing in the, in the coming months or, or weeks? Yes and no. So we've always focused the tests on where we can get the information that we need um, to help us understand what's going on. So we are testing people who are asymptomatic when they're close to a, a, a case. So if, uh, for example, we've recently had some clusters in workplaces, and when we identify a case, we, can, we test everybody who might be at risk in that environment. Same with long-term care homes. So healthcare workers are being tested in long-term care homes if we identify a case. Um, but it, to just randomly test people in the community, again, doesn't provide um, useful information and leads to us having to expend resources on investigations that um, are, are not. So, you know, the challenge that we have is when the WHO said test, 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 and that's the, the be-all and the end-all, they really needed to they test the right people at the right time in the right place. And that's what we've been trying to do here. All right. So let's change gears a little bit. And we've gotten dozens and dozens of questions uh, right down to splitting hairs about 
Uh, what are your recommendations on providing in-clinic care? And uh, these are from dentists, these are from massage therapists. Uh, so I'll, re I'll read the top one here, and then there's a few follow-up ones. So should we continue virtual care indefinitely and limit in-person visits until we have a vaccine, Dr. Henry? Uh, the short answer is yes. You need to find that balance right now. And, and we are recommending that people, um, you know, take a measured approach to providing services in person. And there's much that we have learned in a very short period of time about how effective virtual care can be, not only for clinicians, physicians, services, but for other services as well. Having said that, it is the time that we can start to expand for those people who need it. And we know things like um, how important physiotherapy is for people who are having surgery now that has been postponed and it keeps people out of hospital and it, um, it's important for, for those aspects. So what you need to do and the, the most important thing that we need to do now is put a firewall around our clinical practices and to be absolutely certain that we don't allow people in who have, for other routine visits, for other visits, people who have symptoms of, of a respiratory illness. And so that is a really important measure. And then we have our, our hierarchy of controls that we use in all of our clinical situations. And that includes um, you know, keeping, keeping our safe physical distances. These are the things that protect us. Having these what we call administrative controls, so reducing the number of people that come in, having appointments only, making sure that they have access to hand hygiene, screening them ahead of time to make sure they don't have symptoms. Um, and we, we still know that this virus is transmitted when you're having close contact with somebody face-to-face. -face. We know that it can be transmitted by phone lines in healthcare settings particularly, but really, we know this is transmitted when we have unrecognized people with illness. So being really sensitive about that is our first line of defense. Then, of course, the engineering controls, which are things like having barriers in place, you know, plexiglass and things like that. So yes, we, we do need to have, there are some things we just cannot do without having a person in that environment. And of course, the, the least um, effective of all of our hierarchy of controls is the personal protective equipment. And we know that this is a droplet spread virus, so we know for most care that uh, um, wearing a, a surgical mask and, and eye protection is what we need, and hand hygiene and gloves and a gown if you're going to be cluster sprays. So those are the important things to remember. Um, we also are saying for some services, and I'm thinking like massage therapy, physiotherapy, if you, there's ways that you can do it to maintain your distance, but then there's sometimes you need to be within that safe level. And that's where a non-medical mask on the patient can also help because they, that keeps their droplets in and uh, that can be helped. But really the most important thing is making sure that we are being uh, fastidious about how we screen out anybody who's ill. All right, and again, just pausing to, to keep an eye on our other panelists to see if you want to add anything, but there will be other, other topics coming up shortly as well. So um, the, one of the questions uh, came up about um, specific guidelines for care. Um, now, now, I just wanted to put a plug that a lot of these resources, a lot of these uh, orders and WorkSafe uh, guidelines, uh, there's checklists from Doctors of BC, for example, also available on the UBCCPD website. Uh, it's ubccpd.ca slash COVID-19 slash archive, and we've already posted some of those resources there as well. So um, is there any timeline as to when would you say that uh, we can stop wearing PPE in our in-person visits? 
Yeah, you know, and I think the prevalence in most of our communities is quite low right now. So if you have effective screening, if you have your um, appointments and you're managing that and you're, you're ensuring that people, you know, except for physicians who have to see people with respiratory illness, you know, we do it in a safe way. But for other people, when you're seeing uh, dentists, physiotherapists, other health professionals, um, you should be screening out anybody who has risk or who has um, symptoms and uh, you should be able to effectively see people without PPE. And one more follow-up question on that topic. There's many dentists on, on, on the line as well, and they're, they're asking about the aerosol generating procedures and should the dentist be wearing N95 all day long? And uh, if you have a patient in a room and you do an aerosol generating medical procedure, how long until you can put a second patient in that room? And I'll, I'll leave that open to anyone on the panel to answer. I can start with that. And the, the answer is no. You, you Dentists know how to take care of people who have, I mean, they all your procedures all the time are, are dealing with people's saliva. So the things that you usually do for infection prevention and control are the things you should be doing now. And that does, and we all know this because we've you know, we talk about the protection of bloodborne pathogen transmission, and this, these are things that should be embedded in your practice, that right? you wear gloves, you use hand hygiene, you wear masks, um, you wear eye protection for splashes and uh, as needed. So, uh, you know, those, those are the things you need to do, and as I said, the screening out of people is the most important thing. Having said that, you know, if you are um, a, a dental hygienist, um, who's, who's doing cleanings right now, and you're somebody who's immune suppressed or older, and you don't feel safe doing that at the moment, you, this is a transition period. We still have some tra um, transition in our community, and you know, maybe postponing that type of service for that's non-urgent um, for a period of time is, uh, is up to you. But for most dental services, you should be using the same things that you are using for your infection prevention and control and you should be um, assiduously screening out people that have any sign of respiratory illness. All right, so let's change gears a little bit more, and we're going to take a deep dive into the, uh, the epidemiology and the virology on a micro or sub-microscopic level. So this question is from Dr. H. Kitson. Is there any information yet about how COVID-19 has changed or mutated during its transmission in BC, and do the viruses isolated across Canada from coast to coast, do they differ? So perhaps we can uh, throw that to our epidemiologist and then hear from the others, Dr. Patrick. Well, uh, to, be, to be honest with you, Simon, I mean, the, the, the answer to that is it's not changing very fast, but that's being informed by serial sequencing uh, viruses that Mel is performing in the lab. So I'll let him tell you a bit more about his work there. I have to say, this is the really fun, exciting stuff about what, what Mel's lab has been doing. So. <laughs> Yeah, yeah the, 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 the genomics has been second to none, some of the fastest in the world. So uh, as of the last few days, we've sequenced about 700 of the different genomes that uh, have been circulating in British Columbia, and there's probably well over 5,000 if we can sequence globally. And one of the features that we were able to do by doing some of the sequencing in the very early days was to detect some of these initial cases uh, by importation from Wuhan, China, and then other places from China. We were also um, fortuitous enough to have identified a case in an Iranian individual who uh, traveled from Iran, needless to say, 
And you could distinguish these two strains based on some minor mutations. The virus itself doesn't mutate very much. And although there is some literature about uh, more virulent and less virulent strains, the, the challenge with doing that in, in the real world is you have to control for the population that's affected. And so to date, the virus doesn't mutate very much, but there is enough mutation to help us identify cases that have come in relation to travelers from the US, travelers from Europe, travelers to the dental conference that we had in Vancouver. And where we think this is going to be important is in, uh, as we relax the, the distancing uh, and we relax some of the travel restrictions, we are going to try and focus some of our energies to see whether or not we have onward transmission that is occurring because of imported cases or is it community-based spread. And so the virus doesn't uh, mutate very much, but there's enough mutation to give you some general patterns of where it's going and where it's coming from. So can I ask a question related to that? Um, and because the virus doesn't mutate all that um, quickly, um, I, I think that might be uh, a helpful sign in that we might have longer lasting immunity if we develop antibodies. What do you think, Mel? Well, so there, there's a recent, a bunch of recent reviews looking at how uh, people respond to the MERS virus, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome virus, as well as the old SARS, initial SARS virus. And most people who get infected will have some degree of immunity for a few years. And the challenge for this virus is it's early in the days. We need to have better tests. And then many of us do believe that there will be some type of immunity. And the question, of course, Bonnie, will be how long does it last? And will it protect you uh, from reinfection? And at this point, we are not sure. And some of the reasons we want to do serology tests is to understand whether or not someone who, who has developed antibodies, are they protected from the infection? Well, that also means that if you're caring for somebody who's convalescing from, um, from COVID, um, uh, keep your ears open because we may be very interested in seeing if they're able to help with long-term studies of, um, of immunity. Uh, right now, the studies that are underway are fairly short-term to help characterize um, the nature of the immune response, to help inform uh, MELS tests, and to help inform vaccine development. Um, but uh, what we really want to know is if we've got a good neutralizing antibody response, how long-lived is it? naturally, uh, because that may well help us determine um, how to use a vaccine if we get one. And I'll just say that it's not Mel's test. I work with a fabulous team, and it's that fabulous team that makes some of this stuff possible, including my two colleagues here. Fantastic. I, I think we're, we've all got a team behind us that, that's brought us to this position yeah. here. So I'm, I'm very grateful for the UBC CBD staff that are heavily moderating the, the questions that are coming through. And so, uh, David, you mentioned the vaccine, so why don't we open that Pandora's box? Uh, there are many questions asking, on what day can I get my vaccine? When will it be here? And uh, who's going to get it first? So I'll, I'll leave that one open. Uh, maybe, maybe David, what, what do you know well, about let's, that? And then... Let's start with talking about the vaccine development pathway. I mean, if any of you go to the WHO, they're keeping a regular inventory 
And there are over 100 vaccine candidates uh, being studied on the planet right now, with perhaps a dozen of them um, in clinical trials. And um, I would say that uh, Canadian contributors are, uh, are putting in a lot of work. These vaccines um, uh, take into account anything from old, uh, well-worn strategies from inactivated virus through recombinant proteins um, um, derived from the virus uh, through to uh, newer strategies like messenger RNA vaccine. And because the mRNA vaccines didn't require a whole bunch of virus grown in culture and inactivated. Uh, they got out of the starting blocks fairly quickly. Some of you know that um, a firm was testing um, an mRNA uh, vaccine in Washington State, and its phase one results were kind of encouraging. Uh, it, uh, you get a pretty good antibody response, and it's neutralizing in, um, uh, with respect to viral growth in tissue culture. But we'll see phase three there happen in July. I think most people said that it would take a year to two years uh, to see a vaccine. Um, should the um, a, a relatively easily produced vaccine like the mRNA vaccine prove um, useful in phase three trials, that might take us on the shorter end of that. But for the most part, you can often have encouraging results like the ones we've just seen, and you may need to test four, five, ten other vaccines before you've got anything else. There are um, coronavirus vaccines that have been developed, but we don't have the same kind of expertise with that as we have had with, um, with influenza. Uh, so the other side of the question is, okay, if there's a vaccine being produced and Canadians have been smart enough to in ensure an early supply, who gets uh, immunized first or what will the strategy be? And the, the, the large team behind me with the mathematical modeling is beginning an endeavor to say, okay, what are the different options there? How would we reduce morbidity in the most rapid way? Because there are choices to be made. We could immunize the people at highest risk of getting, um, getting ill to reduce their risk as soon as possible. Or we could uh, immunize the people most responsible for transmission when we better understand networks of, um, of transmission. And of course, there'll be doctrine being developed by Bonnie and her colleagues uh, across the country in terms of what that um, response will look like. So I'll, I'll give her a chance to chime in on that. Yeah, so that, that's absolutely right. What we're trying to do is use the, the modeling from the team at BCCDC and some understanding who's getting sick and who's getting immunity and who's getting more seriously ill. And uh, we have in Canada a National Advisory Committee on Immunization that has um, immunologists and infectious disease and pediatricians and public health people from across the country. And their task right now is developing uh, um, recommendations around how, who should get the, the vaccine um, if we need to sequence it out over time. Um, and that will be informed by some of the work being done at the BCCDC. So that is something that we have started already, recognizing that at some point we'll have to make these decisions, hopefully sooner rather than later. Um, I want to shout out to our colleagues at the Vaccine Evaluation Center at BC Children's Hospital. They're part of a Canadian network that is uh, locked and loaded in terms of uh, testing uh, vaccines, and they're, they're, they're planning to be involved in their first clinical trial next month. Uh, with a novel vaccine. This is a Canadian uh, product taking on a completely different approach. I think this is a, a bifidobacterium that you actually swallow that produces the, uh, the protein from the, uh, the virus, which is a, another radical strategy. 
But out there we've it got can be you know, a whole lot easier to do than having to inject people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Imagine basically yogurt protecting you. Yeah, and there's ones that are nasal spray that are under development as well. Can I just say one more thing about vaccines? Because uh, this is work that has also been done at the BCCBC, but we have a, 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 there was a report that came out of, uh, what's his name, Wolf uh, from the UK, but looked at, uh, looked at uh, it seemed to suggest that people who had influenza immunization were more likely to get infected with COVID. Um, and this was done over one season, uh, one influenza season two years ago. So it wasn't this COVID. It was the COVID viruses that we see that cause milder cold-like illnesses every year. But um, thankfully, we have a very strong um, uh, sentinel surveillance system for influenza, and we do do vaccine effectiveness every year. Part of what they do, um, they, in partnership with Mel's lab and with uh, Dr. Danuta Skrvansky, who works at the BCCDC, is um, making sure that we can um, test whether the influenza vaccine leads to a higher probability of being infected with other viruses. And the, and the short answer is no, that there was a methodological flaw in the way that um, the data from the, the Wolf study had been analyzed, and there is no um, evidence that we have increased risk of infection with COVID viruses for anybody who's been immunized for influenza. I think that's going to be really important. Um, I noticed that had been retweeted in Poland. Good. <laughs> so, uh, but this is going to be important coming into the fall when it's going to be incredibly important for all of us as healthcare workers to make sure that we are protected uh, from influenza because we are likely, you know, who knows, but we are likely going to see um, COVID increase as well as the season changes and we get into our respiratory virus season. And it's going to be challenging for all of us to manage influenza as well as COVID. Absolutely. So um, well, you've, you've uh, answered a whole swath of questions that have come in. So let's move right on and uh, change yours once again. So the top question right now with 85 votes from Andre. What do we really know about the rates of different modes of transmission? Droplets versus hand-to-hand -hand versus fomites of various types and symptomatic and asymptomatic people? I can start with that if you like, because this is sure. something I've been discussing about for, for some time. Um, so really, we know from all of the data, and it keeps getting reinforced around the world, um, that you're more likely to get infected from the people that you are close to and spend time with. And so it's droplets that you inhale in people that you are sitting around in close environments with, particularly indoors. Um, there is some risk of, of fomite transmission, and particularly when you have a lot of force of infection. So we've seen it in, tragically in, in a lot of our healthcare systems where the healthcare system has been overwhelmed and we have a lot of uh, very ill people in the, those situations and where healthcare workers are tired and we're putting on and taking off our, our PPE. And so those situations, we know it can be transmitted more and more data that it's less likely in other environments, but we know with every respiratory virus, it's, it's not getting it on your hands that makes you sick. It's when you get it on your hands and then you rub your face. So that's why hand hygiene is so, so important. Um, and it's less risk outdoors than indoors. And then the one thing I will also say is, you know, we, we don't have um, evidence other than aerosol-generating medical procedures 
that the, that this lasts in the air column and spreads over distances, what we would call traditional airborne spread. So I know that's confusing for, for the public sometimes because it, it is spread through the air through these little droplets when you're close to somebody. And you're more likely to spread it to your family, your loved ones, the people that you are working very close with, which is why we're putting so much attention around that that safe distance around us. And, and it's somewhere between one and two meters, and that's why we say two meters, because it seems to be a reasonable or six feet for those people who are a little older. Um, the other thing that we have learned, though, um, is that there are things that we do in the environment that can actually um, make it uh, lead to super spreading events. And those are often things like singing or playing musical instruments. And I'll turn to David for some comments on that as the trumpet player himself. But there have been outbreaks, including one very recently in Frankfurt, where in a church where they were singing together. And this was just recently, two weeks ago in May, where Germany had reduced some restrictions so people were back in the church. They were supposed to be physically distancing. But uh, over 100 uh, people became ill and they had some deaths. And that was um, all linked back to, well, most of the cases were linked back to that indoor environment, singing in, um, in that uh, type of a post-contact situation. I, I would say, Bonnie, the trumpet's probably less risky because the spit accumulates, you know, just goes out the valves, that kind of thing. But, you're, but the choral scenario, that strikes... Uh, Strikes home very closely. I joined a, a choir for the first time early this year, and um, they've definitely had to disband from getting together regularly. Two meters isn't enough there. I would just add, uh, there's this literature for rhinovirus, which is not the same virus, but they used to do these control studies where they'd have one group of young people infected on one side of a home, and then they'd have a, a chain link fence between the other side of the home. And you could cough and you could sneeze. And most of the infections related to uh, basically a droplet in someone's hand touching somebody else. And, and there's literature about how many times people touch their face, like me, and how many times they touch their eyes. And usually that's about 15 to 20 times an hour. And so the mask is only part of the story. You have to protect your eyes. You have to make sure your hands are clean. And I think that Although it's not directly related to COVID, it, there's so many similarities there. I will also say that surfaces, you know, I get a lot of questions about surfaces. And yes, in a lab, it does last on surfaces for hours, sometimes days, um, depending on humidity and temperature. But uh, more and more, you know, it, this also is a non-envelope virus, so it, or an envelope virus, so it is easily destroyed by your regular household cleaning product or a, a, a one in 10 bleach solution. And it, it's also um, good evidence that it doesn't last long in UV light. So, um, you know, as much as six minutes maybe outside. And so your wrists really are um, spending time inside in close contact with somebody in the face of their droplet. Maybe also worth just reemphasizing the kindness of um, wearing a mask when in doubt for the benefit of, uh, of other people around you. Um, I mean, there may be limited virology on that with this particular virus, but in my other life, you know, you, I look at antimicrobial resistance and things, and you have many little experiments where people cough or sneeze on Petri dishes either with or without a cloth mask, and the colony count is radically different um, when you've got the, the cloth mask simply because the droplet rate is reduced. 
So uh, we need to see more studies, yes, but the common sense would say you are doing quite a bit to reduce the risk of spreading droplets to others if you wear that mask. So um, a, a quick side note here, I, we, we've had some issues with the stream. I'm, I'm getting messages about that. And uh, we apologize to everyone who's been affected by that. Very sorry for that. Uh, the recording will be sent out afterwards. Um, now I'm going to move on to the next question. There's, there's a lot of questions particularly about, uh, we're getting a glimpse into the clinic, into what doctors are being asked. And so the next question is, as a family physician, I've had many requests for medical accommodations for people returning to work, many from K-12 teachers. And, and teachers are wondering if it's safe, uh, parents are wondering if it's safe to send students. So are there criteria about return to work for healthy people, for immunocompromised uh, folks? Any thoughts on that? I guess I can start. Um, obviously, those are things that we've been thinking about, but it really is about having the appropriate hierarchy of controls, and again, in all of the situations. So we've been working very closely with public health, with the Ministry of Education, and uh, and yes, it is safe for children to go to classrooms. It is safe for, for teachers to be in classrooms. What we are doing here in BC is doing it in a limited way to make sure that there's small numbers of children, small numbers. Um, for smaller periods of time, that they don't mix and mingle, that we have the ability to keep the distance between them and for, for the very young, younger kids um, to, to focus on not physically touching each other. And these are things that are, we know are effective. There is very likely going to be some cases detected, and we've seen that across the country, whether it's because they're um, children who are being exposed at home and um, are incubating the disease when they start school, um, that's what we, we've seen in Quebec, for example. Um, we also know that uh, there's been a, an outbreak in a, um, a daycare, a, a, K to, uh, a grade one to five um, setting that was established for healthcare workers' children. And there is most, mostly transmission between the adults in that situation. So how incredibly important it is for teachers, all staff who are going into the school, to check themselves for symptoms every day and the children as well. So these are the things that we put in place to keep it safe. Um, we we define the balance and we need to have a plan and every school will have a plan for what they're going to do if a, a child becomes ill or if a staff person becomes ill and we'll be there to monitor that and to uh, uh, make sure that we're supporting the, the school community should that happen. I'd like to add, I mean, not only did the modeling suggest that if sick people stay home from school or work environments when they're, when they're, when, uh, when, when they're feeling ill, it makes a huge difference to uh, transmission, uh, again, uh, common sense. Uh, but we need to keep making it easy for people to take time off work if they're ill themselves. And um, as uh, underscored by the Prime Minister earlier this week, we need to assure that, um, that that people can get the paid sick leave um, if they do so. That really shouldn't require a note from a family physician in a routine um, case. Yeah, and that is a point that we've been making here in, in BC, and in the Horgan has really pushed that issue on our behalf. Um, it, we've also been working with you know the unions, for the teachers, as well as the Ministry of Education, and they do have um, protocols for accommodation. All right, so uh, we've got about half an hour left of question time, and so we're going to make them a bit more rapid fire, and maybe, just maybe, we'll get through the 256 questions we've got. So um, you, you mentioned people who are 
sick should stay home. And the top question right now is about what about those of us with a runny nose from allergies? Should we be getting tested? Should we be staying home from work? If you're a healthcare worker and you're at all concerned, get tested. Yes, absolutely. Um, if it's your regular allergies that happen every time this year and you take your allergy medication and it goes away, and, you know, maybe not. But if you uh, have any concerns at all, absolutely. Right now, get tested. And the next question, moving right on. So what are the physician obligations for, for giving notes to patients? If a patient says, look, I'm older, I'm worried I'm going to be sick, I need to be off work, uh, any thoughts on uh, obligations of physicians from that perspective? So again, um, we've been telling people, no, that we should not be requiring physician notes for these things. Um, and uh, I've been working with WorkSafe, uh, my team has been working with WorkSafe BC to make sure that there is uh, protocols that businesses can follow um, about making sure that the, the environment is safe and making accommodations for people who have uh, risk factors that put them more at risk. So, Dr. Patrick, I'll throw this one to you. There's um, a lot of questions about uh, the crystal ball, about phase two. What is it you're watching for, and um, how much warning are we going to get so we can prepare? Um, so, obviously, we're keeping an eye on that reproductive number and whether it goes above one, and we're able to sort of recalculate that on a, re on a regular basis. In practical terms, we're looking to see if the number of confirmed cases um, uh, go up in a consistent way over time. Um, and unless we get on a very bad growth trajectory that exceeds what we saw with the previous wave, we should have some time to adjust. That is, we, we, we will see a, a relatively slow takeoff um, of the epidemic to begin with, and then you'd worry about exponential growth a little bit further down the road. We've talked about that in terms of hospital capacity. Um, basically, if we um, identify a problem with regrowth of the epidemic early enough, we should be able, um, through reinstitution of some but not all measures, uh, to turn things around. Because the interesting thing we're finding is the reproductive number uh, needs to go below one, but we don't have to go back to the complete lockdown situation that we've had before to achieve that. That's not, it's not an on-off switch. We can turn down the dimmer a little bit, drive our reproductive number down from 1.3 to 0.8, and, and, and that could do it. And that may just mean reminding people in a more general way about these means of reducing transmission that we've discussed and about uh, reducing um, the contact rate. Uh, so, so, so we think that we should have time to, um, to make adjustments, and we've got not just the, the case counts, we're actually busy taking a look to see if, if um, we have uh, indicators of people congregating a little bit too much using base, basically big data, uh, information from social media, that kind of thing. And if, if we've got too much crowding going on, we can warn people about that before we even see an increase in the epidemic. I think also one of the areas that people are thinking through are what are the what are the impacts of uh, an upcoming respiratory season, for example, with a severe influenza season. So it, it's really trying to be able to have the capacity to rapidly identify influenza, rapidly identify COVID, and really help provide the information that supports the David and Bonnie's needs. Very neat to see the, the team in action. Now, uh, the, the top question right now, how would you su uh, suggest we should be supporting clinical learners, medical students who've been sidelined, healthcare students, as they're tra transitioning back into clinical education, especially with the possibility of a second wave in the fall? 
Well, first of all, I'd like to take my hat off to all of those medical students and clinical learners who have been helping out with the effort. They've been terrific on 811, on, on many, many other different um, uh, projects that they've been involved with. Um, but I understand from the Faculty of Medicine that they should be getting back to clinical rotations come July. Um, I think part of, um, of making sure that they're well looked after is making sure they're well schooled in um, in uh, PPE, but also that whole uh, range of controls, uh, administrative controls and things that Bonnie uh, talked about. Uh, if we do a good job as a society in terms of continuing to contain this, um, it's going to make it easier for them to get their, uh, their rotations in uninterrupted. I don't know what else you'd have to say, Bonnie Mel. My only other thing, and we've had some discussions with uh, some of the, the leaders from UBC um, around uh, learners and across the province, and particularly for people who are doing rotations in some of our more remote and rural locations, that may need to be um, changed depending on the comfort level of the community for having people coming in and out. And there's still a challenge right now in, in a number of our communities in the north or, First Nation, or the First Nations communities in D.C. who may not want to have learners in their community at the moment. And we need to uh, um, support them in that and support our learners and making sure that they get the experience they need. And I think the other thing that's going to be new and amazing for all of us is the, the virtual um, care that we're providing. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, our clinical faculty have always been uh, extremely good at adapting teaching um, within their practice scenario. And I guess this is the, the, uh, the next challenge for those of you on clinical faculty who are doing that teaching because the virtual clinic is here. It adds a whole new layer of uh, teaching and objectives, absolutely. So um, move on to the next number one question. So after seeing a patient with respiratory symptoms, how long does an office exam room need to be kept empty before letting another patient enter that room? So the short answer is it depends on your HVAC system and how many air exchanges you have. And obviously, we want to increase ventilation. But this is not an airborne transmitted virus. So when we talk about leaving a room empty, we're really talking about legal and uh, tuberculosis. So you should have processes in place. As long as you're cleaning, um, then uh, you should be fine. I don't know if you would disagree, Mel or, or David. No, I think it's the cleaning uh, regime between patients that would matter the most. Completely and agree. A lot of those regimes are, are posted on our resource hub on ubccpd.ca slash COVID-19 slash archive. So we'll, we'll leave the further details to that. So. Moving right along, this is fantastic, and I'm, I'm loving the question and answer pace. So since some schools have been open for special groups for some time, have there been any outbreaks or isolated cases of COVID-19 in these schools? Uh, no, there has not at this time. There's been a small number of children, uh, about 5,000 or a little bit more than that, who have been uh, receiving in-school teaching over the last uh, couple of weeks. Um, we've not had any cases identified in any of those. Schools. That is something, of course, that we will continue to watch as, as more children go back um, starting next week. So uh, the next question uh, with the number top number of votes, and this is one for everyone on the panel, so we'll start with uh, you, Mel. When do you wear a mask? Actually, I seldom wear a mask. Uh, I, I did have this uh, mild headache and uh, sore throat and uh, actually wore masks when I went back into work um, and wore it for a few days and was tested and, and was tested negative. 
So um, in general, I will only wear a mask if I thought that I'm placing someone else at risk. And then if I was thought I was going to place someone else at risk, I probably wouldn't go into work, which is basically following Bonnie's and David's wise counsel. I keep one, uh, uh, you know, in my knapsack, uh, but I have to confess to really not having to use it. It, it, was, it was there basically in case I got into a, a crowded scenario where I couldn't distance very well, and it was for the benefit of other people rather than, um, than, uh, than myself. But it, the imagined scenarios would be, you know, if you were on a very crowded uh, transit car or something along those lines. But, um, but beyond that, um, I haven't had the opportunity to use it. I'm the same. I carry one with me all the time, and I did actually use it. I went into a, a smaller grocery store, and there were some older people in there um, who were clearly nervous, and I understand that. So I put a mask on so that it would give them some comfort. All right, carrying right along. And uh, each of you, um, what are your thoughts on the societal impact of the lockdown, the societal impact of COVID restrictions? Uh, such as loss of jobs, increase in domestic violence, uh, co compromise of care of the non-COVID patients. Any thoughts of the collateral damage? Yeah, you know, this is something that uh, obviously we've been thinking about from the very beginning, and, and I, I think we have to put it in the context of, you know, watching this evolve around the world. And as I said a number of times, we're, we're all in the same form around the world, but we're not all in the same boat. And that is something that we are watching very carefully. We've got a survey um, that, those is, uh, that we encourage everybody to take that looks at these issues. You know, what, have, what are the particularly negative unintended consequences, but also positive unintended consequences that we see from the, what we've seen. Um, and we are, uh, my team, uh, along with the BCCDC, uh, are looking very carefully um, at uh, quantifying that from a whole bunch of different perspectives. So we have a, um, a, a team that's looking at um, disaggregating data by uh, race and ethnicity so we can look at it if there's differential impact based on social economic status. We clearly have been monitoring and watching uh, exacerbations of, of non-COVID related illness and whether they've led to increased um, um, rates of death or, or morbidity in people. So, yep, these are things we're following, and it, it goes to why uh, we are taking the approach that we're taking. As David said, we are we do not want to have to go back to um, putting in all of the restrictions that we do because we know the impact has been immense. And we need more social features, the mental health, the emotional health. We've talked about um, increased substance use, uh, increased inter um, interpersonal violence. Those are all things that we know are associated with people going through um, the things that we've been through. So we are monitoring those very carefully. And this is why we need to find that, that level of contact or safe contact that doesn't lead to rapidly progressing outbreaks that swamp our system, because that's where we would get into problems again not only for caring for people with COVID, but caring for everybody else in the system. So that, that's kind of the underlying philosophy that is driving everything we're doing, to try and ensure that we're balancing um, the, the best we can to protect people from COVID 
and also minimizing the unintended negative consequences on, on everybody. So our colleague, uh, Rake Augustuson at BCCDC uh, and is working with people at Vancouver School of Economics as well as the, the uh, groups that Bonnie's talking about, trying to really take a look very broadly at these impacts. So the, the unintended health consequences, as Bonnie puts it, the, the benefits, I've actually been really impressed with humans in BC over the last few months. Uh, it's been very heartening actually to see how kind and good they are to each other. But also understanding the um, the, um, the economic costs and, and also you know how we can uh, mitigate that optimally over the next uh, month or two. I think it's also important as health professionals and generally well-to-do Canadians to really reflect on on the people who are most affected through job losses and and to really recognize that we're there to try and while we're trying to protect the public, we're also trying to protect them and to make sure that that they don't suffer unnecessarily. And hence, it's really this juggling act that is a challenge for all of us. And, you know, we look at things like our response to uh, the outbreak in our correctional facilities and the overriding importance of protecting those people because they are, um, you know, differentially affected. And, you know, I won't, sorry, I won't go in, but yes, this is something we take to heart, and, you know, it goes to the social determinants of health, and how can we improve that for all of us? Okay, so I'll, I'll go on to the next questions. Um, so the top one now, with some swimming pools opening up this week, what is the evidence regarding survival of the virus in respiratory droplets and chlorinated pools? All good. <laughs> no, there's no evidence that it survives in swimming pools, uh, well chlorinated, or uh, bodies of water, like even like lakes outside or our salt water. Um, the the risk is um, sick people going, and you're being in the locker room too close to them. So we have to make sure we don't have groups of people congregating around swimming places. But uh, the water itself is all good. Mel, what can you say in general about say chlorine and enveloped viruses? Because this is certainly one of them. Well, chlorine is very effective for uh, most bacteria and viruses. It, it sometimes has trouble with some of the uh, parasites like Giardia, but basically I completely agree the water isn't a concern. It's more what you do before you get into the water or after you get out of the water. And so, Mel, one of the top questions now is a, is a good follow-up to that. So can germicidal UV light inactivate COVID-19? Should we be buying that for a smoke? smartphones, cars, clinics, labs, what do you think? You know, I think that there's so many effective agents to, to protect your hands, to protect your surfaces. And as, as Bonnie pointed out, what's really important to realize is it's moist surfaces that are the greatest challenge. And those usually are in your fingers as you're touching one, one part of your body and touching another individual. In general, the, the hygienic practices that most of us apply, and many of us are applying even greater practices, will suffice. And yes, UV light does work, but is it necessary? That's unclear. The technology is a little expensive indoors now. I mean, taking things outdoors, sure. Um, but, you know, basic alcohol-based hand sanitizers work well, too, and alcohol wipes and yeah, so there's lots of things that kill this virus. 
Very good. Let's keep barreling through. So in many countries, healthcare providers over 60 years of age have been banned from working in clinical areas due to the risk of increase in morbidities and mortality. Is this happening in BC? Is this going to happen in BC? No. <laughs> um, what we're focusing on, can you imagine? Um, we have a real hard time, especially in some settings. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's all about personal risk. And, of course, we know the risk goes up over 65. But really, if we look at our data and data from around the world, it, it really is over 70 and over 80 where we're starting to see people. And there are, of course, people who are under that age, and we've had people who died in their 40s. Um, but um, the risk just for age uh, goes up dramatically. So it's one personal risk assessment. Um, I did that, yeah, we are looking at certain things. For example, we have a number of retired physicians and retired nurses who've signed up to come back and help out. And what we're looking at is, you know, we would love to have those people support us in contact tracing and public health because it's not in the acute care environment where it's um, risky. They're not looking after COVID patients necessarily, but um, they, it's incredibly important work that we're going to need to do. Plus, we need to do things like catching up. One of the things we know is that uh, um, uh, infants have been falling behind on their, their basic immunizations, and we need to get that back on the ground because if we don't get the basic immunizations into into our young kids right now, that's going to affect them for the rest of their life and they may be uh, susceptible to the other infections that we know are happening. So we can use that type of support to beef up our, our uh, childhood immunization programs through the summer and the school programs that got missed. And uh, then we can use it through the, the team for contact tracing. And if and when we have a vaccine for COVID, um, we can repurpose um, our workforce to, to be able to do that too. So those are the things that kind of we're looking at right now. And I know the hospitals are, are looking at um, strategies where the hospitalists can support the ICU docs and anesthetists can support the ICU docs and then um, clinicians, for example, or nurses from the community can um, take the non-COVID pieces. And so there, there are workforce strategies that we're looking at uh, for contingency plans. So uh, we've got just under 10 minutes left, uh, only about 250 questions left. Let's see, let's see how we can do it before we start wrapping up. So I'll, I'll, let's start with, with you, Dr. Patrick, for this question from Lisa Vassell. Can we please have more local prevalence data so we can better prepare our rural emergency departments for the fall surge of infectious patients? I think uh, that's, a, that, that, that's a great question. The truth is that in, in, in many of our um, regions in BC, the number of cases has been very low. So they, the stability of those estimates of prevalence would be pretty low. But once Mel and his team begin to roll out seroprevalence studies uh, that, that tell us you know, where the virus has been, we'll have a much better idea about the, the history of distribution uh, around the province. Um, Bonnie has had, I think, um, um, a, a good policy of trying to make sure that very small communities are not necessarily singled out because it wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't um, put any, anybody further ahead. Uh, I think the challenge that we get is everybody wants to know exactly where it is um, because they think that then they're not at risk. And that is our challenge, that this virus is insidious and we know um, it, it is spreading um, not as rapidly from people who are uh, you know, early on in the course of illness or asymptomatic or not yet recognizing symptoms in themselves, 
but it is popping up in communities and we know that. So that's why we all needed to take the measures that we're taking and we need to continue them because it's not the cases that we know are positive that are the, the risk, it's the ones that we don't know yet. And we, it is still in our community now. We have uh, 300 and some active cases, just under 300 active cases that we know about. But we also have several hundred people who are contacts of those cases who we are following and may become positive. And those are in communities around the province. We've also, and you might have heard this, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who are still returning to Canada, including we know um, at least uh, 100 and some thousand to, to BC in the last few weeks. Uh, we've had a case of some repatriation flights from India in the last couple of days. We've also had cases arise in, in temporary foreign workers who are here who've been in quarantine. So, you know, we still need to take these measures and to, to um, be very vigilant in this transition period. And so just as a direct response to that, in fact, the, the next top question now is given that this virus is so insidious, so why not test every patient being admitted to hospital? Why not test every patient being transferred to long-term care, again, even if they're asymptomatic? So I'll just, you know, I don't know how many of you may have watched the CDC news report yesterday that had certain people saying test everybody, even after you were exposed to someone the day before. Um, I think one of the things people have to understand is, is even with our nucleic acid testing, there's a false positivity rate of about half of a percent. That means for every 200 people you test, you're going to get a false positive. And the, the importance is, is if, you, if you start testing everybody, completely asymptomatic individuals with no uh, risk factors, you're going to have to think through okay, uh, is it a true positive or is it a false positive? And then to Bonnie's point, we know that in some cases, the first test can be negative, the person is hospitalized. You still need to be careful using your PPE when you're doing procedures that relate to aerosolizing and other procedures that cause risk to the staff. So it, it's simplistic to say that by testing everyone, I will solve everything. I think appropriate testing, identifying people who are mixed with symptomatic people, identifying people where the risk procedures are, are critical, all of these things are appropriate. But you can't test your way out of it. It's about a team thinking through all of the challenges and trying to do what David and Bonnie are trying to do, which is to keep that R not low one. And I, I will say as well that you know, some other parts of the, the country, they've been, we've all been trialing different things. Um, and in Alberta, they did uh, testing in three of the main hospitals of every single patient who went into the hospital, um, and they found zero. But they still had cases that arose. So the top question right now is for everyone on the panel. So uh, why don't we start with you, Dr. Patrick. Each of you, please share one pearl or something new you've learned during this pandemic that's going to influence and change your behavior moving forward? Um, I would say that it, it has to do with um, being prepared. Uh, I think uh, the, the province was in an adequate state of uh, preparation. There was a lot of good advanced planning for uh, pandemics. Uh, and yet, despite, you know, urging on some fronts, there were some resources in Mel's lab, for example, that we were short on, uh, uh, you know, coming into it. 
I think the ability to have uh, teams that understand each other, that are prepared to move on this or other like problems is, is pretty critical. And I don't think we can let down our guard uh, because this virus could be back and uh, we can see other threats just over the horizon. For me, what I've found to be, uh, although this has been a very challenging time and it's a challenge for all of us, what I found most rewarding was the fact that uh, we were able to achieve things that I don't think you can achieve during a normal time. Like we went from having challenges of doing a test to actually deploying a test, thinking about delivering that test from a provincial perspective to support all of the regions of the province, to being able to integrate that data on a daily basis. And prior to this, you know, there, the systems weren't allowing this to take place. And, and I think that in itself highlights the point that David, David highlighted, which is when you have a great team and you're trying your best to, to address the situation, Things that should be normally possible become really possible because normally the system doesn't allow these kinds of quick actions. And COVID has forced us to really think out of the box and act quickly. I think for me, um, <laughs> learning about um, the importance and the value of uh, communicating. And, you know, I say it all the time, but the importance of kindness the fact that uh, when we're going through a common um, storm like this, uh, there's so much anxiety. Um, people react in different ways. They become angry because they're afraid. They become agitated because they're afraid. And you know, my, my mantra really is about recognizing that we have it in us to support each other. And the only way we can get through something like this that is affecting everybody around the world is to do it together. Fantastic. That's a, that's a great wind-up note. Um, we, uh, we also wanted to leave a little bit of time for a couple of closing words that I've been asked to read, but also any other last summer, summaries that are a little bit broader than, than your own personal uh, pearls there, but any, any, any last thoughts, summarizing thoughts, uh, anything particularly that you want our audience uh, of, of hundreds and thousands of people to, to take home with them and, and, and keep in their pocket? Uh, Mel, let's start with you. We're in this together and we need to support each other and it's not going to disappear quickly. Vaccine isn't going to come quickly and we're going to need to support each other through some complicated times and care for each other. David? Um, I think as I was mentioning a moment ago, um, being impressed with just the, the common person in BC and with what goes on. I think we are capable of great things and there's something about our culture here that allows us to pull together, um, that allows us to form teams to do things that couldn't be done in normal times and that allows us to listen and act upon the evidence and what people are, are, are concerned about. Um, I, I, it's been very affirming for me as somebody living in British Columbia and Canada to see this response here when you realize what the alternatives are. Yeah, I, you know, the value 
that we put on our elders and seniors in our lives and the tragedies that this virus has had in long-term care homes. And I hope we are able to, to you know, solve that problem and change that um, for good. But, you know, I'll just finish with my be kind, be calm, and be safe, and we'll get through this. That's fantastic. So um, well, you weren't as long-winded on the, on the closing thoughts as I thought you'd be. So we've got a couple minutes left. Why don't we do a couple of uh, thumbs up, thumbs down, uh, yes or no questions. Um, and, and all three of you can answer each of these. So should we ask everyone to wear non-medical masks before wearing a doctor's office? Or is it that simple? Thumbs up, thumbs down. Not every single person. All right, let's, let's see if we can get through another one. Um, so um, if travel to the U.S. opens up, will there be a 14-day quarantine? <laughs> <laughs> that, that was fast. Okay, wow. All right. Um, and should we be... Okay. Should we be reusing PPE? Uh, okay. There's a qualifier there. <laughs> okay, um, okay. These, these, are, these are not single use. They are disposable, but they're not single use. And some of them, like respirators, can be um, effectively cleaned. So um, reprocessed, we call it. So some of those, yes, we can reuse. And um, right. some of them are, uh, there are not single use, like uh, some of the visors. They're not disposable. They can be reused as well. So some things effectively can be reused. All right, halfway. Uh, multi-system inflammatory syndrome in kids, uh, yes or no? Has there been cases in BC? It's an interesting one. <laughs> in, in clinical cases of Kawasaki disease or multi-system inflammatory disorder, but um, those have not been conclusively linked to uh, COVID at this time. Um, there'll be further study done by Catherine Biggs and Stuart Turvey at BC Children's Hospital and their group um, of immunologists. And, that, and they're going to involve uh, Mel as the testing gets better. Mel was talking about better, better testing so that we can make sure that the right serological tests are employed to determine if there has been an exposure that uh, might have contributed. Problem. Yeah, so this is something that I've made a reportable condition, which means that it, we can go back and look as of January and look at all of the cases that meet the clinical case definition and um, when we have an appropriate test be able to determine it. There were, I believe, six I last heard of uh, children who met the, the clinical case definition, but so far nobody has been confirmed to be related to COVID. Um, all right, maybe we can do this one thumbs up and down. Is BC currently recommending uh, for dentists pre-procedural rinses with 1.5% hydrogen peroxide? Apparently it's being done elsewhere. Yeah, that's a dental professional question. You guys work it out. <laughs> okay. And um, let's see if there's any more yes, no questions here that we can get to quickly. Um, is there going to be a second wave, yes or no? Yes. Well, you look not so convinced. Well, I think I think we're going to be careful about what we do, and I think I'm hoping that by paying attention to this, we'll mitigate that second wave as right. best as we can. Absolutely. Yeah. So by by saying yes now, but then doing a good job, you'll prove yourselves wrong, and hopefully, hopefully you do. Is massage contraindicated with blood clots? Is massage safe during a COVID-19? Because some massage therapists aren't going back to work yet due to concerns regarding cardiovascular effects of COVID-19. So is massage safe? In somebody who has COVID-19 or, again, it, you know, the massage therapist, 
yeah, your decision about when you're ready to go back to, to work. But we know that uh, massage can be very helpful for people and can keep them out of the healthcare system. Um, but uh, it's, you need to screen out anybody who might have COVID-19. Um, we do know that hypercoagulability that seems to be associated with infection with COVID-19, particularly more severe infections that can lead to blood clotting later on um, in the infection. And we know that the people have been affected here in BC who have died even from uh, pulmonary embolus and other uh, clotting disorders. But, but specialists who are seeing people who have been admitted to hospital with more severe COVID-19 are getting quite adept at uh, preventing um, clots by, by early intervention, um, but also in, in assessing people uh, for them. So that will be the minority of people with COVID-19, and it will have been assessed before discharge. Well, thanks for letting me get through a whole other pack of questions right at the end. I, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I am going to read the, the number one question right now. Uh, it's a yes or no, thumbs up, thumbs down. Can I have Dr. Henry's autograph from Anonymous? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Sounds Except good. Sorry, I'm far. You just, you know, that's <laughs> kind of it. We don't know where to send it. Unfortunately, uh, David and Mel, nobody has asked for our autographs, but uh, I think that... No, far for the course. Nobody's, nobody's designed a shoe for me either, actually. <laughs> and I want to say thank you for everybody for supporting the food bank. <laughs> Absolutely, and, and we, we're so grateful to everyone who's behind the scenes, and I, I know I would definitely love to, to keep hearing from everyone, and there's hundreds of questions remaining. Um, a lot of the questions we, we skipped over is because they are on the resources, uh, ubccpd.ca slash COVID-19 slash archive, but let's wrap up there. Again, once again, thank you so much to Dr. Bonnie Henry, to Dr. David Patrick, to Dr. Mel Krashen, and all of you are very dedicated health professionals and excellent educators, and we really, really appreciate you taking time from your busy lives and for working together to make this happen tonight. Um, and all, I'm sure all the attendees are so appreciative of, of you joining us here. Our apologies once again to those of you who had struggles with the streaming service, and we have saved the webinar. We're going to post it online very shortly. Uh, there are more webinars like this coming up. In just uh, a moment, I'll tell you about those. But first, those of you are, who are wondering about getting your main pro credits, getting your section one credits, Make sure you look in the link in your email account and fill out the evaluation forms, fill out the, the evaluation, and you will get your credits that way. Um, the, uh, there, there's a long list of folks who are working behind the, the scenes at UBC CPD as well, and I do want to name them because I've always been so impressed with their professionalism and their capability. Uh, Stephanie Amayamu, Jenny Barrows, Michelle Baysan, Lindsay Callen, Judy Chen, Yan Chow, Steph Din, Kathy Gao, Jenna Lightbody, Vivian Lamb, Sandy McNeil, Kate Meffin, Desiree Torrios, and Nina Zorik. Uh, without you, uh, these webinars would not have happened. And I know many of you are working tonight and are working hard behind the scenes. As well, I did want to thank our medical directors uh, who have joined us uh, and who made this happen too. Uh, I know uh, some of them made the initial call to Dr. Patrick. Uh, so thank you Bob, to Dr. Bob Blumen, Dr. Bruce Hobson, and to our Dean, Dr. Brenna Lynn, for your help and oversight. And thank you to everyone who was able to attend. And thank you to all of you who asked questions. Uh, my sincere apologies if we didn't get to yours. So there is another COVID-19 webinar upcoming, and that is from the Rural Healthcare Webinar Series. That's the, it's, the next topic is called Ask Anything, Rural Emergency Topics During COVID-19, May 27th at 7 p.m. And you can sign up at ubccpd.ca. And finally, uh, Please be aware in the follow-up email, you're going to get a follow-up email once again with the links that we've mentioned. 
There's also a hub. Uh, many of the questions that are being asked are being posted on our new Q&A resource called React, which is available to answer any of your COVID-19 questions. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to feature many of the questions that we didn't get to tonight. A link to our COVID-19 podcast and webinar recordings and summaries will be included. Uh, that brings us to the end of it. One final goodbye to all of our panelists. And again, once again, a very big thank you to all of you. Thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. If you're interested in more COVID-19 related content, another great show you might enjoy is hosted by Drs. Sarah Fletcher and Morgan Price. Their podcast is Primary Care in a Pandemic, and it looks at changes to primary care in BC and how healthcare providers are adapting to the crisis. Metamorphosis is a podcast by medical students for medical students to help navigate their professional careers. The first few episodes of the season are part of their COVID-19 series, with an added focus on healthcare workers and how they've been involved with and affected by the global pandemic. On behalf of the UBC Medicine team, I hope you are staying healthy, happy, and safe in this crisis, and we want to extend our sincerest thanks to those who are working tirelessly to keep everyone safe. Thank you, and please tune in for the rest of our episodes. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 